My first post to the Facebook group about Part 2, Books 1 and 2, was a focused summary of the chapter. The Whites found their ruthless and formidable leader in Lantanac. In these chapters, the Blues found theirs in Simordan. The stakes of this drama have been raised. What a fascinating, fascinating character Simordan is. I set myself the challenge of reducing his character down to a single sentence. I recommend setting yourself such challenges, too. Once you have ample information about a character, and here Hugo gives us plenty, so that you are not mind-reading, which I talked about in a previous post offering general reading advice, reducing a character down to essentials is a valuable exercise for a number of reasons. It forces you into conscious reflection about the character. It habituates you to looking for fundamentals. It helps you to formulate the character's nature in a retainable unit. All of this facilitates clear thought and discussion of the novel's meaning. Before I offer my condensed summary of Simordan, let's review some of his essential and uniquely defining traits through quotes from the novel, culminating in my favorite description of him and one of my favorite quotes in the whole book. Simordan was a pure but dark conscience. He used meditation as one uses a pair of pincers. He did not think he had a right to leave an idea until he had followed it through to the end. He thought relentlessly. His family had been taken away from him. He adopted his country. A wife had been refused to him. He espoused humanity. Good deeds that are ugly to see are the most difficult to perform. He preferred them. Simordan was sublime, but sublime in isolation, in lofty remoteness, in inhospitable lividity surrounded by precipices. High mountains have that kind of sinister virginity. He loved him with every tenderness at once, as a father, as a brother, as a friend, as a creator. And my favorite, he had the blind certainty of the arrow, which sees nothing but the goal and goes toward it. So here I go with my essential description. I bet many of you can do better. Simordan is a deep-thinking and grandly ambitious man of rigid and dispassionate principle, who has devoted himself wholly to the people against the aristocracy, and who will admit no weaknesses in the goal of revolution. Except perhaps one. Okay, that's two sentences, but the second one is such an exception and so pregnant with possible conflicts. Marat, Danton, and Robespierre need this sort of man to supervise the commander of the expeditionary force that has been sent against Lantanac. The commander is, by all accounts, a great military leader. But he's known to have one fault, a fault definitively not possessed by Simordan. Clemency. If a Republican leader faltered, Simordan would cut off his head within 24 hours. But when Simordan learns the name of the man he is to supervise, he turns pale. Govan. We saw Lantanac, too, react with distress when he learned the name of the man who signed the order for his execution. Govan. How are all these men connected? What will that mean? Perhaps you are beginning to see. You will soon.
The next of my posts to the Facebook group was actually a blog post I wrote several years ago about the origin of my blog's title, Pygmalion of the Soul. You are now familiar with that phrase from 93. Here is the post. Several years ago, I taught Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw to a class of junior high students. Pygmalion is the story of a lowly flower girl who is invited into the home of a brilliant phonetician after he makes a bet that he can teach her the elegance and speech of a proper English lady and pass her off as a duchess at a garden party. The musical My Fair Lady was based upon this classic play. In the play's most comical scene, a favorite among my students, Eliza, the flower girl, ventures into society for the first time. Having been told to confine her conversation to the benign and inoffensive topics of weather and health, she discusses, with the utmost elegance of manners and articulation, her suspicion that her aunt, who had allegedly died from influenza, had actually been murdered over a hat. And so begins a comedy of errors in which, as Higgins the phonetician says, the problem is not how she says things, but what she says. With more training, Eliza learns to curb her coarse speech, and she becomes thoroughly polished, dignified, and charming. Her debut at the garden party is a smashing and unmitigated success. She has become a proper English lady. But in the last and most important scene of the play, we discover that though she has learned to be a lady, she has not yet learned to be a human being, an independent, self-sufficient individual with her own judgment and her own sense of self-worth. She has learned how to conform to the standards of elite society, but she has not learned how to form her own standards. It is only when she drops her decorum and stands up self-confidently against Higgins that he says, By George Eliza, I said I'd make a woman of you, and I have. Because for Higgins, and for Shaw, the mark of a worthy person is not conformity to the standards of the upper classes. Rather, a worthy person is one who has, in my favorite expression of the play, his own soul his own spark of divine fire. Teaching the play this time, it struck me as metaphorical for my own view of education. Just as Eliza was taught in a way that allowed her to be passed off as a duchess at a garden party, the best of schools today teach children in a way that allows them to be passed off as educated at a cocktail party. But have they learned to be clear-thinking, independent, passionate human beings? Have they gained their own spark of divine fire? The goal of any school should be not to teach the children a stock set of facts that will make them culturally literate. It should be to empower them with the lessons of history, to equip them with the tools of math and science, to provide them the fuel and inspiration of literature, to endow them with the wisdom that will give them the means to live a meaningful and fulfilled life. In 93, Victor Hugo has a passage in which he describes the role of a teacher. He says, It is a beautiful thing to mold a statue and give it life. It is more beautiful to shape an intelligence and give it truth. And he captures this metaphor in an exquisitely poetic description, calling a teacher a Pygmalion of the soul. 
My blog is dedicated to all those Pygmalions, striving to raise children with their own spark of divine fire. My final post to the Facebook group was about my favorite passages from Part 2, Books 1 and 2. I bet you can guess which section in this chapter my students typically mention first. That's right, the tumor. It is remarkable because it's disgusting, but also because it is brilliant characterization. It makes categorically clear Simordan's particular variety of devotion to humanity, a dark, self-sacrificial, impassive yet almost spiteful devotion. He doesn't just tend to the suffering, he seeks open sores in order to kiss them. He is not just willing to perform the ugliest of good deeds, he prefers them. He does not just save a suffering man's life, he sucks the pus out of a fetid and contagious tumor. It's odd to call this section one of my favorites, but it is. I also absolutely loved this breathtaking description. Like the sea eagle, he had a profound inner calm along with an outer liking for risk. Certain winged, fierce, and tranquil natures are made for the great winds. There are true souls of the storm. Souls of the storm is one of those phrases that is Shakespearean in its poetry, in its ability to capture an abstract truth with a concise and vivid metaphor. It is such an insightful designation of a certain type, a man of calm fearlessness, tranquil ferocity, and serene love of risk. And it is so well captured in this brief and alliterative phrase. I also like thinking about what other characters from movies or literature would be deserving of phrases like this. Clint Eastwood immediately comes to mind for me. Virtually every character he has played is a soul of the storm, with a profound coolness in the face of the gravest of dangers. If you come on over to the Facebook discussion, you can tell me who you think of. There were so many grand insights, subtle observations, and exquisite descriptions in this section that the task of choosing favorites is difficult. But here's a final one of mine. Perhaps one of the reasons I love Hugo as much as I do is that his writing gives me the distinct impression that he really understands and really loves children. Here's one of the reasons why. It is so easy to love a child. For what is a child not forgiven? He is forgiven for being a lord, a prince, a king. The innocence of his age makes one forget the crimes of his race. His weakness makes one forget the exaggeration of his rank. He is so small that he is forgiven for being great. The slave forgives him for being a master. The old negro idolizes the white infant. Simordan conceived a passion for his pupil. One of the ineffable characteristics of childhood is that it enables one to exhaust all kinds of love in it. Everything in Simordan that was capable of loving pounced, so to speak, on that child. That gentle, innocent creature became a kind of prey to that heart doomed to solitude. He loved him with every tenderness at once, as a father, as a brother, as a friend, as a creator. The boy was his son, the son not of his flesh, but of his mind. He was not the father, and this was not his work, but he was the master, 
and this was his masterpiece. There's so much captured in that passage, the innocence of the child and his guiltlessness of humanity's crimes, the paternal love of a teacher and the sense in which his pupil is the child of his mind, the way in which an intense love feels strangely predatory, like one is pouncing on the object of his affection. I think every parent knows this feeling. There will be many more passages about childhood and parental love to come in this novel. As a side note, I've noticed that many of my favorite writers and thinkers make common use of the word ineffable. Ineffable means causing so much emotion, especially pleasure, that it cannot be described. I think I just admire those capable of noticing and experiencing and striving to describe the ineffable. <laughs>